Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric, and today we're reading short and deep, the third level, by Jack Finney. This was first published in Collier's, October seventh, nineteen fifty. It's a one-page story in that volume, and uh, has a little piece of art. Uh, I've subsequently found a nice uh, color version of that art, and I'll maybe I'll revise the PDF so people be able to see that. Um, this uh, author's fairly famous, Jack Finney. Um, he's got a great novel called The Body Snatchers, or Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And uh, he's got a few other time travel stories people would be relatively familiar with. This is one I'd heard of before I read it, but it wasn't, like, uh, particularly famous. So um, you may be surprised to hear this, Eric, but this may be the most widely read science fiction story in English. I am surprised at that. Uh, by which you mean it's the most widely reprinted? Um, I'm not sure about that. Uh, I don't have a lot of evidence for that. What I do have a lot of evidence for is that a lot of people are reading it. Um, huh. And uh, this is surprising to me, given that it's it's a good story, but and it's and uh, it's it's fun to read, and as it's science fiction in a certain sense. Um, but uh it's it's not like a classic of sf in the way that you know a, a short story by hg wells might be or arthur c clark or you know a number of stories that we've covered on this podcast even ray bradbury's you know got a whole lot of stories that are way more famous than this one um this one doesn't even have a wikipedia entry that tells you how sort of um obscure it is as an sf story it's it's uh, something you may have heard of but it's probably not something you read unless you are living in India and you're learning English. Then this story is in uh, everybody's classroom, apparently, because if you go to uh, YouTube and you type in the third level, you will see endless, endless, endless number, dozens and dozens of dozens of uh, teachers explaining this story for students. <laughs> well, I believe you as far as its current ubiquity in India goes. Mm -hmm. uh, I have to say the story is set in New York. Primarily it concerns uh, a railroad station called Grand Central. Um, I grew up in New York. I've been to Grand Central. Most of the magazines that published science fiction back in those days, and this is a 1950 story, were based in New York. Uh, and I've got to say, I read this when I was a kid, probably somewhere in the mid-50s or certainly before I went to college, which was 1962. And it made an impression on me such that I have remembered it my entire life. Mm -hmm. And that may just be because I was born and bred where the story was set and published, but I think the story is is hardly what one would call obscure. Well, I, I'm just thinking, like in terms of, I mean, maybe to your generation, just <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not obscure uh, to some people for sure, but um, it's it's not the most, not even close to being one of the most widely reprinted stories. It is it is well reprinted, but um, I, 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 that just astonished me that they. 
that India somehow decided this was the story that we're going to teach everybody. Because fundamentally, uh, when I'm when I went through this story with a student the other day, what I noticed is I had to explain a hell of a lot of stuff. Almost all of them Americanisms, very very specific American ideas and concepts and it's because it is so nostalgic and it's about america right it, it it's it's dealing with that um maybe uh we should save some of this for after you read it to us though that'll be fun for me okay the third level by jack finney The presidents of the New York Central and the New York New Haven and Hartford Railroads will swear on a stack of timetables that there are only two. But I say there are three because I've been on the third level at Grand Central Station. Yes, I've taken the obvious step. I talked to a psychiatrist friend of mine, among others. I told him about the third level at Grand Central Station, and he said it was a waking dream wish fulfillment. He said I was unhappy. That made my wife kind of mad, but he explained that he meant the modern world is full of insecurity, fear, war, worry, and all the rest of it, and that I just want to escape. Well, hell, who doesn't? Everybody I know wants to escape, but they don't wander down into any third level at at Grand Central Station. But that's the reason, he said, and my friends all agreed. Everything points to what they claimed. My stamp collecting, for example, that's a temporary refuge from reality. Well, maybe, but my grandfather didn't need any refuge from reality. Things were pretty nice and peaceful in his day, from all I hear. And he started my collection. It's a nice collection, too. Blocks of four of practically every U.S. issue. First day covers and so on. President Roosevelt collected stamps, too, you know. Anyway, here's what happened at Grand Central. One night last summer, I worked late at the office. I was in a hurry to get uptown to my apartment, So I decided to take the subway from Grand Central because it's faster than the bus. Now, I don't know why this should have happened to me. I'm just an ordinary guy named Charlie, 31 years old, and I was wearing a tan gabardine suit and a straw hat with a fancy band. I passed a dozen men who looked just like me, and I wasn't trying to escape from anything. I just wanted to get home to Louisa, my wife. I turned into Grand Central from Vanderbilt Avenue and went down the steps to the first level where you take the trains like the 20th century. Then I walked down another flight to the second level where you take the suburban trains, ducked into an arched doorway leading for the subway and got lost. That's easy to do. I've been in and out of Grand Central hundreds of times, but I'm always bumping into new doorways and stairs and corridors. Once I got into a tunnel about a mile long, and came out in the lobby of the Roosevelt Hotel. Another time I came up in an office building on 46th Street, three blocks away. Sometimes I think Grand Central is growing like a tree, pushing out new corridors and staircases like roots. There's probably a long tunnel that nobody knows about, feeling its way under the city right now on its way to Times Square, and maybe another to Central Park. And maybe, because for so many people through the years, Grand Central has been an exit, a way of escape. Maybe that's how the tunnel I got into, but I never told my psychiatrist friend about that idea. The corridor I was in began angling left and slanting downward, and I thought that was wrong, but I kept on walking. 
all I could hear was the empty sound of my own footsteps, and I didn't pass a soul. Then I heard that sort of hollow roar ahead that means open space and people talking. The tunnel turned sharp left. I went down a short flight of stairs and came out on the third level at Grand Central Station. For just a moment, I thought I was back on the second level, but I saw the room was smaller and there were fewer ticket windows and train gates. And the information booth on the center was wood and old looking. And the man in the booth wore green eye shade and long black sleeve protectors. The lights were dim and sort of flickering. Then I saw why. They were open flame gas lights. There were brass spittoons on the floor, and across the station, a glint of light caught my eye. A man was pulling a gold watch from his vest pocket. He snapped open the cover, glanced at his watch, and frowned. He wore a dirty hat, a black four-button suit with tiny lapels, and he had a big black handlebar mustache. Then I looked around and saw that everyone in the station was dressed like 1890-something. I never saw so many beards, sideburns, and fancy mustaches in my life. A woman walked in through the train gate, and she wore a dress with leg of mutton sleeves and skirts to the top of her high-button shoes. Back of her, out on the track, I caught a glimpse of a locomotive, a very small Courier and Ives locomotive with a funnel-shaped stack. And then I knew. To make sure, I walked over to a newsboy and glanced at the stack of papers at his feet. It was The World, and The World hasn't been published for years. The lead story said something about President Cleveland. I've found that front page since in the public library files, and it was printed June 11, 1894. I turned toward the ticket windows, knowing that here, on the third level of Grand Central, I could buy tickets that would take Louisa and me anywhere in the United States we wanted to go. In the year 1894, and I wanted two tickets to Galesburg, Illinois. Have you ever been there? It's a wonderful town still with big old frame houses, huge lawns and tremendous trees whose branches meet overhead and roof the streets. And in 1894, summer evenings were twice as long and people sat out on their lawns, the men smoking cigars and talking quietly, the women waving palm leaf fans with the fireflies all around in a peaceful world. To be back there with the First World War still 20 years off and World War II over 40 years in the future, I wanted two tickets for that. The clerk figured the fare. He glanced at my fancy hat band, but he figured the fare. And I had enough for two coach tickets one way. But when I counted out the money and looked up, the clerk was staring at me. He nodded at the bills. That ain't money, mister, he said. And if you're trying to skin me, you won't get very far. And he glanced at the cash drawer beside him. Of course, the money was old style bills. Half again, as big as the money we use nowadays and different looking. I turned away and got out fast. There's nothing nice about jail, even in 1894. And that was that. I left the same way I came, I suppose. Next day, during lunch hour, I drew $300 out of the bank, nearly all we had, and bought old-style currency that really worried my psychiatrist friend. You can buy old money at almost any coin dealers, but you have to pay a premium. $300 bought less than 200 in old-style bills. But I didn't care. Eggs were 13 cents a dozen in 1894. 
but I've never again found the corridor that leads to the third level at Grand Central Station, although I've tried often enough. Louisa was pretty worried when I told her all this and didn't want me to look for the third level anymore, and after a while, I stopped. I went back to my stamps, but now we're both looking every weekend because now we have proof that the third level is still there. My friend Sam Weiner disappeared. Nobody knew where, but I sort of suspected because Sam's a city boy and I used to tell him about Galesburg. I went to school there. And he always said he liked the sound of that place. And that's where he is all right in 1894. Because one night, fussing with my stamp collection, I found, well, do you know what a first day cover is? When a new stamp is issued, stamp collectors buy some and use them to mail envelopes to themselves on the very first day of sale. And the postmark proves the date. The envelope is called a first day cover. They're never opened. You just put blank paper in the envelope. That night, among my oldest first day covers, I found one that shouldn't have been there. But there it was. It was there because someone had mailed it to my grandfather at his home in Galesburg. That's what the address on the envelope said. And it had been there since July 18th, 1894. The postmark showed that. Yet I didn't remember it at all. The stamp was a six-cent dull brown with a picture of President Garfield. Naturally, when the envelope came to Granddad in the mail, it went right into his collection and stayed there till I took it out and opened it. The paper inside wasn't blank. It read, 941 Willard Street, Galesburg, Illinois, July 18, 1894. Charlie, I got to wishing that you were right. Then I got to believing you were right. And Charlie, it's true. I found the third level. I've been here two weeks. And right now, down the street at the dailies, someone is playing a piano. And they're all out on the front porch singing, seeing Nellie home. And I'm invited over for lemonade. Come on back, Charlie and Louisa. Keep looking till you find the third level. It's worth it. Believe me, the note is signed Sam. At the stamp and coin store I go to, I found out that Sam bought $800 worth of old style currency. That ought to set him up in a nice little hay feed and grain business. He always said that's what he really wished he could do. And he certainly can't go back to his old business, not in Galesburg, Illinois, in 1894. His old business? <laughs> Why, Sam was my psychiatrist. <laughs> it's a great story. Um, it's a great story. Uh, figuring out why it's such a great story is kind of interesting. Um, you you can sense that it's a great story, but um, it's... I don't know if he was a, a genius at construction. Um, I think that there's probably something to that. But uh, I just found when I'm reading Jack Finney, I, I read The Invasion of the Body Snatchers very recently. Um, he is just, he's so amiable. He really gives us, we, 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 we like the characters. We like spending time with them. We, we sort of make their thoughts our thoughts. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, I, I just like in making my notes for this story, I, I have so many like little, oh, that's interesting. 
so the very first sentence when it starts off it's a little bit confusing and i think that's deliberate so i'll just read that again the presidents of the new york central and new york new haven and hartford railroads will swear on a stack of timetables that there are only two two what (laughs) well first of all i figured out oh there's two presidents right that's why you say the presidents uh, because there's two kind of train stations at i'm assuming this is correct at grand central station there's two kinds of trains is that right local trains and more than one train line yeah yeah local trains and distant trains right and hence the two levels um and there's that fun part uh swearing on a stack of timetables this is a funny (laughs) i think this is an american idiom swearing on a stack of bibles right um right (laughs) increasing the power of the of the swearing by having multiple Bibles makes your chances of going to hell much worse if you lie. I don't understand the logic. At least, it's, at least it says what you hold sacred. That's right. And in this case, they hold the timetables sacred. And I think that's hilarious on so many levels. Um, because At least three. At least three levels, because they say those this third level doesn't exist. Um, but, of course, this story is playing with time. <laughs> right so there's um there's you know this train will arrive at this place at this time and all that stuff but then i noticed how many other presidents are mentioned in this story um uh cleveland is mentioned uh, grover cleveland is mentioned roosevelt is mentioned twice uh, it's not clear which roosevelt he's talking about um actually it is uh, in both it's, cases it's not, clear, it's not clear to you and me but it's clear in 1950 <laughs> Because the Roosevelt Hotel um, Indeed. had been around for a long time, so we know that's Teddy Roosevelt. And it was well known in 1950 that the recently deceased President Franklin Delano Roosevelt had been a stamp collector. Right. So uh, it's arguable that Roosevelt's actually mentioned three times, I think. Or maybe, yeah, maybe it's the... Well, there are two Roosevelt presidents, is the point. Indeed. And, and then there's the, how many the, presidents? Yeah. And then there's the Roosevelt Hotel. But actually, Garfield shows up later as well. Um, on yep. that stamp, so uh, the uh, going back to that original sentence, the presidents of the New York Central and New York New Haven and Hartford Railroads will swear on a stack of timetables that there are only two. Well, if we start counting New York, New York, New Haven, Hartford, <laughs> well, that's more than two. And then no, we've actually, got that's two. Oh, I get it, but New York, New Haven, and Hartford are three different places, but it's also one. Uh, but train, it's one, rail- one r- railroad system, right? So it, it, he's playing with numbers throughout this, and if you like dig into it, it's quite interesting. He gets very specific. There's uh, a newspaper he sees uh, on that third level. It's uh, June 11th, 1894, and then later, uh, just over a month later, um, he get, his friend Sam has sent him a letter, July 18th, 1894. And we get the address, 941 Willard Street. And um, what's so interesting to me is, like, this story is about recognizing the past and and thinking of it as in a nostalgic way. Now, we here in 2020 are looking at it and seeing this story from 1950, uh, in which a character is lamenting all the wars that are happening all the busyness of the city and wanting everything to be simple and 
cool the way his grandfather had it in 1894. His infectious um, enthusiasm for this period and his conviction of what he saw is, is so infectious, he, he convinces his own psychiatrist to go looking for this place. And that all transfers to us. I think that's, that's a lot of the power of this story is it's uh, got this mimetic um, ability to transmit the enthusiasm of a, what he calls himself a regular guy, right? Uh, we don't know what he does for a living. We know he works in an office. Um, he's commuting. He wants to go home. And suddenly his memories are his transferred memories of his grandfather's town where he grew up and went to school. Oh boy, that's just the greatest thing. <laughs> it's true. Uh, clearly, that voice and the sense of of longing, uh, the the sense that once upon a time there was a peaceful past. It's, it's paradise lost, mm-hmm. and he wants to re- regain paradise. That's a a common theme in uh, time travel stories. It's also a common theme in utopian stories, whether they're set in the past or the future in comparison with the narrative present, that even in the future they are, in effect, new versions of that paradisal past. It's a lovely story. It turns out, though, that it's a story that we can dig more deeply into because he has, uh, that is, Finney, has has laden it with all sorts of extras. For instance, um, we're told that um, once uh, Charlie um, even got lost and he went through a tunnel that must have been about a mile long mm-hmm. and came up in the lobby of the Roosevelt Hotel. Well, if you happen to walk the streets of New York, you'll find out that the Roosevelt Hotel is about 450 feet from Grand Central. Um, it's, a, it's a little under a tenth of a mile. So that mile-long corridor was a, a perceived mile-long corridor. Mm-hmm. In the same way, Sam says, first I thought it, then I believed it. In fact, time becomes malleable because of belief. As soon as Charlie gets to the third level, he instantly knows that he can get a train anywhere in 1894. He just instantly knows that. How does he know that? Mm-hmm. He knows it the same way that people know, that, the same way that, that the witch knows that Rapunzel is pregnant. Yes. In, uh, I mean, Rapunzel's mother is pregnant. It's a fairy tale. You just know these things. But the things that are being known here are such wonderful things, particularly in an American context. Now, the railroad, the, the one particular famous train, it is, in fact, billed as the most famous train ever, not that it perhaps still is, but it was then, mm-hmm. uh, was a train called the 20th Century Limited. The 20th Century Limited ran from New York to Chicago. It's called Limited because it made only limited stops along the way. It was a luxury express train that ran right until the 1960s. Um, the 20th century, however, is how it is often called. Mm-hmm. In other words, I can get on a train like the 20th century. So it's a time travel train. Mm-hmm. Now, this time travel train comes out of Grand Central Station. Nobody today is likely to know what I'm about to tell you. But in 1950, people would know 
that that station, which is still called Grand Central Station, I mean, I grew up calling it Grand Central Station, that's not its right name. <laughs> right? When it was first built, when a train station was first built on that property, it was called Grand Central Station. And then it was replaced by the current building in the early 20th century. And that building is called Grand Central Terminal because all of those suburban trains and intercity trains end at that place. Mm -hmm. But Grand Central Terminal wouldn't sound like a place for wish fulfillment, whereas Grand Central Station, which is what people want to think of it as, is a place where you can go from here to wherever. When you go from here to wherever, in this case, you wind up in Galesburg, Illinois, and the family out there, who are these people whom Sam meets back in time? They are the dailies. Mm -hmm. He's come to meet people who inhabit a different kind of time. And they are singing, Seeing Nellie Home. It's a nostalgic song about going back to where you come from. <laughs> The letter is dated July 18th, 1894, and Sam says to, to Charlie, knowing Charlie will find this letter far in the future, he says, I've been here two weeks. Well, guess what? Two weeks before July 18th is Independence Day. Mm. It's July 4th. Mm -hmm. Finney has absolutely laden this story with rewards for a reader who is willing to excavate, to go down not just to the first level or the second level, but the third level. As you were saying, he gets us to feel the inside of the character. He gets us to share, you used the word mimetic. He gets us to, to have a sense of what it is like to live this desire. Mm -hmm. And I think he's also created a story that gives us the same pleasure that a stamp collector might have of being able to say, ah, I have found the clue. This is what it was like there. Mm -hmm. Then this all fits together. This is perfect. And in so doing, I think he has made something that is a memorable experience, not simply a story. Mm -hmm. There's a... Um fascinating little element too in, in for us readers today um so what what our hero charlie notices is the spittoons all the handlebar mustaches and the mutton leg uh shoulders on the lady's dress right all these signs of of wow look at how the hair of the facial hair has changed and the dresses have changed and Everything is these spittoons, right? Now, if we were suddenly transported to a third level in Grand Central Station in 1950, accident, <laughs> what would we see that's different? Well, we'd see those hat bands, those three-piece suits. We'd see cigarettes, people smoking everywhere, ashtrays, right? And... Imagine that third level uh, from 1950 doesn't go to 1894, but rather goes to 2020. What would Charlie see? He'd see all these people staring at phones, 
<laughs> carrying Starbucks. All, all, all facial hairs back in, not as much as it was with the mutton chops. But women are wearing pants. Right? <laughs> Everything's changed. Um, the the nostalgia factor is incredible here, and it's related to uh, a very interesting phenomena: stamp collecting. As uh, it's sort of gone out of fashion. Um, today, but they used to call it uh, as one of my uncles, who was a philatelist, which is uh, what stamp collectors call themselves. Um, <laughs> they're called they're uh, they call it the hobby of kings and the king of hobbies. Right? <laughs> uh, the kings would famously collect books full of their own visage from their empire, you know, from all of these colonies all over the world and new issues. So it's something that you can pass on to your children if they're interested. But what's so interesting is also that, of course, Charlie knows exactly what to do in his wish fulfillment fantasy his psychiatrist tells him about. As soon as he figures out that this money will not work, the money in his wallet, he knows exactly where to go. Because stamp collectors, like numismatists, that is, coin collectors, often shop at the same store. It's a stamp and coin store. The old money store and the old stamp store are often the same store. So right. these guys would run into each other, and sometimes they're the same guy. And, uh, of course, he, he knows exactly what to do. And <laughs> this it, sort of concept he explains to his psychiatrist at the beginning of the story, we find out... Um, his psychiatrist is like, no, 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 you're, you're imagining things. And then he's like, oh my, that's a great idea. As he's walking out of the party mm-hmm. or whatever. And of course he goes looking for the third level and he figures out exactly what he needs, which is to turn, what's he going to do? He's going to become a, a hay dealer, <laughs> right. so, which is something that, you know, you wouldn't need in 1950, but definitely is needed in 1894. So uh, there's a, a a wonderful, as you say, a number of levels to this story, uh, a, a rewarding experience. It's 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 really what I like in a story is that everything does work. It's an incredibly short story, but it's packed full of stuff, and it doesn't feel like it's jammed in there. It all just works like a beautiful mechanism. There's a, a part of that mechanism that I, I think is is one or it's in that deeper level that that we feel if we come to if we come to really embrace the story, we feel it. But I think it's unlikely we think about it consciously or most people perhaps wouldn't. But we're asked to think about it in Charlie in the letter to Charlie, where the, where Sam says, I got to wishing that you're right. And then I got to believing you were right. <laughs> All right. So. Wish fulfillment, yeah, but if you believe in it, that's something even more powerful, right? You've got to go from wishing to believing. It's a question of faith. Knox College, by the way, was a Presbyterian institution. That's in Galesburg, Illinois. That's where Charlie probably went. And Sam Weiner, given his name and his profession in 1950, is probably Jewish. Mm -hmm. So he has to make a conversion to be able to, to make the third level real. Now, when Charlie first goes down, Notice, you said, what would we notice? I'll tell you, if I went down into a new place, you know, you get off of an airplane, you come to sure. a terminal you've never been in before. The first thing I notice are the other people. 
I think human beings are, are geared for that. Mm-hmm. We first notice other people, right? But that's not what happens here. The first thing he does is notice the size of the, 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 uh, the train, the level. He notices the number of gates. Mm. He notices the composition of the information booth in the center of the, uh, the floor. Then he notices the guy behind the information booth or ticket booth. Then he notices the people. He's doing this backwards. Yeah. This isn't how people really go. He is starting by constructing the context. And the more he makes that context real to himself, the closer he comes to being able to live among the people that that context applies to. This is bad psychology if it really happens, but it's perfect psychology if you're going from wishing to believing, Mm. if you're going from lack of faith to faith. This is a fairy tale. It is. It's not a time travel story. I mean, it uses time travel. Yes, it's a fairy tale that says if we believe hard enough, (laughs) we can do it too. (laughs) Yep. That's Um, why... Here we are, 70 years later, after publication, and you just gave it another reading. What if it were 1950 and we were looking forward? With a wish-fulfillment fairy tale like this, there's always more to say. (laughs) Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.